Fixate on Code, Episode 5. All right, Larry Boerter here, and you're listening to Fixate on Code, the weekly bite-sized podcast where I talk to the best devs about their favorite strategies for writing great code. Now, let's chat with today's featured guest, Amjad Massad. Amjad, are you ready to get down to business? Definitely ready. Amjad is the CEO and founder of Replit, a simple and reliable cloud coding interface supporting more than 30 languages built to assist teachers in the classroom and make prototyping painless for software engineers. Amjad was also tech lead on the JavaScript infrastructure team at Facebook, worked at Codecademy at its founding stages, and even spent some time at Yahoo before that. On top of that, Amjad is also a core contributor to Babel.js and React Native. Amjad, can you fill in some of the gaps in that intro and tell me a little bit about what you get up to when you're not writing code? Uh, yeah, I think that was that was a perfect intro. Uh, um, I am, I guess, some of the gaps. Uh, I am from Jordan. Uh, that's where I grew up, uh, and I studied computer science. Uh, I um, and then where I worked at Yahoo before joining Code Academy and moving to New York. I'm currently in in San Francisco, where uh, where is the, where the HQ of Replit is. Um, when I'm write, not writing code, we're um, let's see. Well, it's been since I started, since we started the company a year ago. It's been taking, if not the majority, uh, all of my time. Uh, so, if I'm not writing code, I'm replying to emails and talking to users, doing you know administrative stuff that comes with the CEO job, like doing payroll. Um, accounting, things like that, chores basically in order to run the business. But you know, sometimes you have to do these things in order to actually do the thing that, that you want to do in the world. <laughs> yeah, some of the necessary evils. Now, Amjad, you've worked at a number of big companies that would make a lot of people jealous. What were the steps that got you to where you are at now, to being CEO of Replit? Yeah, so um, I think uh, the main thing is to always be thinking about like what you want to build next, whether it's at your work or whether in your side project. And the way to think about that is uh, there are a couple of strategy, strategies that I use, but one is trying to predict what's an upcoming technology. So, so for example, if you, wanna, if you want to be known in a certain community, if you want to have some expertise and be an authority in a, in a, in a, say a language community, the best way to do it is be there on the ground level. And, you know, we're lucky in our industry, there's always a ground level around. So if you right now look around you, you'll see, you'll see multiple new languages, you'll see multiple new frameworks. So pick one of them, try to think, try to predict it. You know, it's like investing, try to figure out which one has the most legs. Um, but even if you failed at predicting that, that that one would be successful, you'd also still have a good time. But that's the first step. So like, look for a language that doesn't have a lot of people, but has a really core community of people that are pushing it forward, that are like passionate about it, that have experience, and that are welcoming so that you can come into that community and actually contribute and do something with it. So that's one. And then the second is, um, you know, build cool stuff. I mean, just find the technologies that you want to learn and then find the, the 
the useful things that you want to build and then combine the two, two things together and you have a, you have a really winning recipe. Um, so Replit came from the, 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 the problem of, uh, the problem of how hard it is to get started with programming. Um, I was in school and every time I'd go to a new programming class, I have to install and, and my IDE, my compiler. And then the next class, I'd have to do the same thing all over again. So the problem was like, let's solve, let's make coding in the browser easy um, or possible at least. And then the other thing, I was like really interested in JavaScript, really interested in HTML5, really interested in kind of pushing the envelope. You know, back in 2010, everyone was like really pushing the envelope of the web and like seeing what the web can do and, and you know, compiling different things to JavaScript. And so I, I wanted to be part of that. So, you know, combining th- these two things, I think you would have a winning recipe. And, you know, most of, most of the people that end up at great positions in big companies usually come from open source work or come from the community. I mean, if you look at Facebook now, Facebook hires from the React community. I mean, they, for example, they just hired the, the guy who wrote a competitive library to React, a library called Inferno, and it was faster than React. And, uh, you know, they hired the guy. Uh, that was just recently. That's one example off the top of my head. To make React fast, faster. So, uh, so the best way to get to, to the big companies and the important teams is actually not through the front door. It's actually through the back door. <laughs> <laughs> and open source projects are only one way to get noticed. There's tons of people who are, I suppose, they're getting their name out there teaching, whether it's from courses, writing, or presenting at conferences. Now, Amjad, can you tell me about the worst experience you've ever had on a project? The worst experience? Um, I mean, so there are like experiences that are bad that in the looking back on them, they're rewarding and they're um, important to have had. Um, I'm not sure. So let's see. I mean, uh, working on product at Facebook was was a bit hard because uh, so when I joined Facebook, I before moving to the infrastructure team and working on React Native and Babel and these these things, I worked on Photos team, and I like working on product. It's not I don't have anything against it. The problem is like the Photos team at Facebook was kind of one of the oldest teams and one of the more kind of cemented products and was generating a lot of revenue and it was really hard to change. So I ended up prototyping and working on a lot of different products that didn't make it out. And that's always, you know, a lot of engineers will probably relate to that. That's always disappointing to, to go through. But, you know, you, when you look back at it, you're like, you can see the concrete learning lessons that, that, that you had. Well, sometimes actually the lessons are a negative or like you would say, okay, I know not to do that. I know when I start a company, I don't want to get my product in a, in a position where engineers can't change it. For example, it could be that kind of learning experience. I don't know, working on projects that don't make it into the world, it's super frustrating, but still it's, it's that experience that you draw on for future projects. It's yeah. easy to forget where you've come from and the perspective you've gained. Now, Amjad, do you have any methods, tools, or services that you're using on a daily basis that you'd hate to be without? Um, I'm trying to think beyond the usual 
typical stuff that any engineer would would say or any developer would say, which is, you know, my my editor. I love Emacs, um, and uh, it just I'm very productive in Emacs because I can just be focused on a, on a single screen and do most most of the things that I need in just one screen. Um, and uh, I actually love uh, Chrome developer tools. Um, uh, the uh, when, when working with a, a big product like Facebook, you you don't understand where who you don't understand most of the code. You know that's that's a, you know by by definition almost because like most most of the code is not written by you. Most of the code is not designed by you. Most of the code is written over years, and there's no single designer. It's like kind of you know uh, innovation over the years and and um, and hard to understand, not not very documented. So Chrome DevTools in that scenario really helped me out um, to figure out that code. Um, and I even wrote a few extensions. Um, uh, some of them still around, some of them are not, to help me do that. So one of the first extensions was, um, was called Flow. So I know Facebook has a Flow type system, but that's not that. Mine is Flow without the W, so F-L-O. And... And so what Flow does is um, it, would, uh, it does hot reloading. So one of the problems is that when you're doing uh, local development at Facebook, the reload times are really slow. Um, but even if they're not slow, once you get to the, to the flow that you want to get to, it's really, it takes time. You know, say I was working on the album upload flow. So every time I change something in the album upload flow, I need to you know, write the code, save it, and then go to the browser, refresh it, and then, you know, take a photo, upload it, and then get to, get to the album upload flow. So, like, that feedback cycle is not the same as, you know, what we're used to with Command-R or Control-R. That's the web, you know, feedback cycle that we're used to. So I wanted something to, like, as I change the code, to, like, update it immediately. Um, so luckily, Chrome API has a, a, a method to, like, Pull in and replace uh, certain files and and styles uh, live on your page, uh, but actually nobody made made a good use of that. The only thing that made made a good use of that is actually the Chrome DevTools source tab. So you can change code live in the Chrome DevTools, but they also exposed that API. So I used it to um, to do that. So when I had save. Uh, what happens is there's a there's a WebSocket connection between my browser, my Chrome extension, and my server, and the server is watching the files. So when I hit save, it detects what file changes. It transforms it, you know, whether it's Babel or what have you, and then sends it down to the client. And then the the client, which is a Chrome extension, would look up where that file is and would 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 swap it out. And that was you know before React Hot Loader before. Hot loading was was a big topic. Um, I, w- I was trying to do this kind of stuff. It worked really, really well, especially in the context of Facebook. It did not, however, become very popular because setting it up required quite a bit of investment, and it wasn't it wasn't easy to do that. <laughs> um, uh, so that's that's one of the tools. So how does Flow differ from what we have now with HMR and Live Reload and those sort of tools? Are these tools similar to Flow or a modern evolution of Flow? 
in in some sense they're they're better than flow because they integrate with your with a webpack or which with your packager so you don't have to write the custom code to find the files you don't have to write the custom code to to replace the you know replace the files and things like that so they integrate well with the rest of the tool chain that's one um and it, I think that's that's the biggest one. But what Flow was better at is that it hooked into the native. Uh, the second thing is like they work with any browser. Flow kind of just worked with Chrome. Uh, but what Flow was better at is that it actually hooked into the Engine API. So now with HMR, there are some edge cases where, say, you have an events listener, right? So you have window dot. Uh, on keypress, and then you pass out a function. That that function, th- that that piece of code with HMR would not be replaced because that function is a compiled function, and the browser has a pointer to that function, and you can't replace it. It's just in memory. Um, so so it has a lot of edge cases like that. Now. What Flow does actually recompiles the code of the the code of that function. Uh, it would it would like you have an event listener, you had a you had a set interval, you had a timer. All these things will update. So I I think that's the thing that people kind of like take uh, for granted when they when they're looking at these things. That was, that was hard to market because people didn't get why that was important. But for for us to have a really good hot reloading system is 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 for us to really you know hook into the native APIs. I think that's why uh, Dan Abramov, for example, one of his inspiration for building Redux is to get um, hot reloading and and time travel to work uh, on a fundamental fundamental level and React, and so. JavaScript doesn't lend itself to these kind of debugging tools, right? Because it's you know it's uh, it's imperative, it's very mutative. So you either need to like reinvent things from scratch or invent a framework that that makes all these things easier, or just circumvent all that and go to the engine itself. And uh, I, I try to do the latter. Yeah, it's incredible how just a few years ago that things like hot module reloading were mostly unknown. And today these are just standard in our workflows. I mean, there was so much abstraction in our feedback loops that just isn't there anymore. Mm. Now regarding frustration and your daily work, where do you feel there's room for things to be done in a more effective way? Um, yeah, I, uh, there, there, <laughs> God, there, there's so many. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's never, it's never perfect. And we reach, uh, homeostasis pretty quickly and, and we want it faster and faster. Um, so one is Webpack. I think Webpack is a great, great product, but it's slow. <laughs> it's so slow. It's, it's just, <laughs> it's bringing us back to, to like compiled code, like, you know, I've seen apps that spend 45 seconds per file save. Wow. Um, just to get something on the screen. Um, I've seen apps that spend... I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, you don't even have to have a massive code base to, to get there. So um, so I think Webpack can be improved dramatically. So at Facebook, I worked on the React Native Packager. And with React Native, our goal was to be 
less than 100 milliseconds for turnaround. For any time you save a file, it should reload and uh, it should recompute the bundle in, in less than 100 milliseconds. We actually, we were able to achieve that. I'm not sure if, if now... We actually, How much code were you guys compiling? Uh, uh, we had uh, hundreds of megabytes of, of JavaScript. Um, I think the compiled bundle in was, less than a hundred milliseconds. Yeah, I think the compiled the compiled bundle was 10, 10 megabytes, something like that. Wow. Yeah. So it was a lot of a lot of code. That is fast. Yeah. So we had we had to do a lot of crazy things. We had to compute the. Uh, I had to do a lot of hacks to like recompute, for example, the the source maps. So we, for example, we changed Babel to to be to retain lines. So for example, Babel, you know, munges your code in ways that you can't imagine. But actually there's a little known option called retain lines. So retain lines, what it do is like, it will do the best effort to keep uh, the compiled code matching the original code in the same line. So what that gives us is it makes it very easy to generate the source map. So source map generation, for example, took like, uh, it's it's the it's one of the hardest things that actually Webpack has has to deal with, but for us it took something like I don't know thirty forty milliseconds to like generate the entire source maps and concatenate it together. Um, so uh, that sort of things like we had to do a lot of things by hand. I know the React Native Packager team now at Facebook. Um, they're not only doing that; they're actually looking at the compiled. They're looking at V8 um, JIT, and they're looking at the assembly code from the JIT, and like figuring out how they can make things faster. And they made source map generation even faster now. So that focus on performance, I'd love to see it in, in Webpack, or maybe I'd love to see the React Native Packager becomes a general purpose packager because I th- I think it's a pretty good technology. Yeah, it sounds like something everyone can benefit from. I don't think. I don't think there are any Webpack users out there who can't relate to the frustration of waiting for bundles to compile. Yeah. Now, in terms of new projects, libraries, and frameworks, what are you most excited about at the moment? Um, let's see. Uh, React is still pretty exciting. Uh, you know, a lot is happening in React. I was at ReactConf uh, yesterday, um, and they announced uh, React Fiber. So React Fiber is a rewrite of of react internals mm. and it just um uh it, it it wouldn't necessarily change the api but it just would make most apps a lot faster so it's really exciting to see um i'm not an expert on fiber um but it's really exciting to see like what's happening in the react community i think it's still you know where the most of the innovation and the front end is is happening and they're always trying to outdo themselves. They have this new language called Reason that they talked about as well. That that the that actually they write React in. You can write React in Reason. Uh, it's it's based on OCaml, and it compiles either to native, so you can run it in React Native or a native uh, uh, mobile app, or compiles to JavaScript. I think now they have ten percent of Messenger. Written in Reason and React Reason, so you see Facebook always. You know the communities sometimes get mad because they're like, "Oh, I have to learn one more thing now from Facebook." <laughs> but uh, you know, GraphQL 
you know, it's still early days of innovation. So I think this whole React ecosystem is is still uh, really interesting. Um, another one is uh, I personally love Go. I think it's it's more like s- stabilizing the Go language, um, but there are still unsolved problems there. There there are dependencies that they're that are trying to solve, um, but it's still you know an exciting frontier. Go and Rust as languages, I think, are exciting new frontiers because you know. Language design was stagnating for so long. Um, we it was all you know the same set of features that are, people are putting in different ways. You know, CoffeeScript is Ruby and Python and JavaScript put together. You know, it's like everyone's <laughs> picking and choosing different different language paradigms and and creating a uh, you know <laughs> creating a mixture of them. But uh, I think Go and Rust are. Um, trying trying to do something new, so I think that that those are exciting as well. Oh, and uh, if I can add one more thing, I think uh, what's happening in the kind of uh, what's been dubbed the Web three, which is the distributed web. I think this is really exciting for me. Um, to name a few projects, there's IPFS. Um, there is uh, uh, you know, of course, Ethereum, and you know. Uh, to, to you know, Bitcoin a little bit, but I think it's it doesn't really solve the problem. I think Ethereum as an application platform, as a distributed application platform, is interesting. Uh, there's another a project called Orbit, and that's really interesting as well. And what what all these projects are trying to solve is centralization. And I think um, Tim Berners Lee recently also threw in with the with the effort, and and they said that yes, the web is 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 broken basically because it's too centralized. Um, AWS went down. It broke the internet a week, a couple <laughs> of weeks ago. Um, so, yeah, we, we're we're in a terrible place. I mean, if you think back to like the inventors of the internet when they invented TCP/IP, they had in mind that they wanted the internet to work in the in even in a, in the case of a nuclear war. That's how distributed at the core the internet is. But now we're building all these services that centralizes everything in a single place. And so there's there's a lot of innovation that's happening and and the uh, and that space. So you know it goes back to you know initially you asked me like what's what's the best way to get your na- name out there or build up expertise to be hired by big companies or you know be part of something exciting. I think once you look at for example at the distributed web that's you know happening between all these projects, I'll probably if I had time I'll probably go mess around with one of these projects because. I'm pretty sure that a lot of people, especially with all these leaks and security issues, a lot of people kind of you know understand that we're we're towards technological we're trending towards technological dystopia. So we want to turn things around and, and make it better for everyone. Okay, so you've mentioned Web three, you've mentioned Go and Rust and all these new languages and these specifications that are coming out. But how do you make time to learn and how do you decide on what you actually want to learn? Um, so I'm, I take, a, I think, a different approach than most people in the sense that I don't learn anything until I have a project because I just don't have patience to sit down with a book um, and, and just read. If I sit down with a book and read, I'll, all I think is about projects that I want to build with the things that, that I'm reading about. So... Uh, 
so, yeah, I think as I grow a bit uh, older, I think it becomes easier for me to actually read about things before trying them out. But um, five, six years ago, I yeah, I couldn't be bothered. I immediately like looked at the website, looked at the documentation, you know, getting quick, uh, you know, getting started or right, download, get started, and then I'll learn as I go and make mistakes and things like that. Um, so the first thing that I do is really think about a project right, right now. Like I want to, you know, I want to mess around with TensorFlow and the new machine learning and deep learning things, but I just, I don't do it because I don't have a project. I mean, I, I, I would not see the point. I would not have the enough attention span or enough, um, motivation to just sit down and learn without actually having a project. So we're thinking about different projects at Replit that you know we we have more and more data going through our system so uh, there are some exciting things that we can do there so you know once once we actually have some concrete plans i'll probably you know take a month uh, to to start you know at the same time learning and planning or writing some code for what would become the project that we're we're going to build so with all your learning and your years of experience and the companies you've worked with which specific aspect about programming has dramatically changed the way that you think about and write code? Hmm. I think the biggest one is concurrency. Um, so coming to JavaScript was uh, so I came from uh, I came from PHP uh, uh, in school Java C and before that I did Visual Basic. And all these are like blocking synchronous code. So when I came to JavaScript from that, it was a completely you know change of of, of ways of doing things. It would, um, yeah, I I was for a while my I had a like consistent uh, headache <laughs> trying to understand all the callbacks, and that that was. That was tough. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, Node came out and, uh, you know, and just building your sideways Christmas trees. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and <laughs> Node came out and, and uh, you know, we had, uh, well, what was it called? The, the callback doom or uh, <laughs> callback hell? Yeah, callback hell. Callback hell. So, um, yeah. So, started thinking more. I, at first, I was really excited by how JavaScript does things. I think it was it was really cool. I mean the the run to completion model is is really cool. Like you don't have to think about threads. Uh, you just you know write a code in a single thread and make sure it just runs fast. There's nothing in your code can run and interfere with the with the current object that you you currently have. So all these things were really cool about JavaScript. Uh, I think when Node came out, it kind of stressed that asynchronous nature a little bit more, and callbacks became really really painful. So I started thinking a lot about callbacks and. At Code Academy, we we built a lot of node services, and we had a lot of problems with, um, you know, callbacks and that being called um, uh, memory leaks because because of callbacks will you know retain the closure and we don't know where they go. Um, just it was like very tough. So that's one. At Facebook, we also with the album upload manager, um, we had a we had a lot of bugs and the like. Ninety percent of them came down to concurrency. The concurrency patterns in JavaScript are just bad. So that's something that I thought about a lot. 
Uh, and that's why I'm attracted to Go because Go like brings an interesting, new, refreshing idea to concurrency, namely uh, channels. So channels are these objects that can communicate with each other via message passing. And you can start these things called Go routines. And Go routines are basically functions that are potentially running in different threads, but could, could be running on the same core. Uh, just uh, it just like conceptually, they're these functions that are running on their own. Um, and so and they communicate with each other via these channels. So that's a refreshing idea in concurrency, and that makes it a lot easier. It's easier than threads because you don't have to share memory. You don't have to you know have mutexes and you know you you don't know where, where who, who's holding the lock and uh, things like that, all the problems with the mutexes. But also, it doesn't it's, it doesn't suffer from the things that say uh, JavaScript suffers from. It, it definitely doesn't suffer from the things that Python or Ruby suffer, suffers from, which is a global uh, interpreter lock. These languages have have threads, but they don't do anything because the once uh, you can't really run things concurrently. So uh, it, it's better than JavaScript because um, uh, because it's just a primitive inside the language that that supports um, that supports concurrency now the, what happened in JavaScript since callbacks was promises and you know promises had a lot of drama but I'm glad it eventually won because it's much better than JavaScript you know, one example is like say I pass you a callback so that callback that I pass you you can do whatever you want with it you can call it multiple times you can call it three times and you can mess around with with my logic right um, and so I would expect like that you would call the callback once when you once you're done, but you can do whatever you want with it. In promises, on the other hand, it's it's uh, uh, it's an object that I keep, that inverts that uh, that doesn't have this inversion of control. I don't give you the callback and I'll tell you just call me whenever. Uh, no, instead um, I start a, a promise and then I have a handle to that promise. And you can't call me multiple times. You can't you know. Um, do do whatever you want with the callback. So it's it solves some of that inversion of control problem, um, but still suffers from code quality problems. It's still you know it's not callback hell, but it's definitely callbacks, and you know it's uh, you end up in multiple different closures, and it's it's, a, it's still ergonomically not not good. So what happened after that was um, was a- a- async await, and now we're getting somewhere in JavaScript. So async await is part of a larger thing, which which uh, in computer science is called coroutines. And the idea of coroutines is that you can block, you can conceptually block a function, but in reality you're not really blocking the function. You are yielding uh, somewhere else. To the event loop, to some other function that is that is, continues to execute while you are conceptually blocking. So the uh, the the next the instruction is just paused somewhere in your function, and then when when your turn comes back or when something is resolved, then that function continues. And why that's good is because um, we're now back to to the basics. We can we can uh, use the Native language constructs, like for example, try catch. Like when we were doing callbacks and promises, we can't use try catch because because things are in different um, uh, because 
things are in different closures. Um, if we go to async await, now we can use try catch. We can use you know f statements. We can we can just write code that looks imperative, that looks synchronous, you know, that that reads like a like a story. Do you know like just any regular C like language? Um, so so I think that's that's really good. And actually, by the way, even Go routines are coroutines as well. So any uh, any any time a language has this. Um, feature where you can pause functions and then return to them later that's called a coroutine and i think that that is really one of the great um concurrency patterns and and languages and uh, i'm really excited to see how async await will be changing the javascript community there's still some some problems with async await but i think it's much better place where uh from before how far are we away from having full support for async and await and being able to use them without any polyfills or anything? I think definitely by by the end of the year, I think most people will be writing async await. Uh, I think V8 has it behind the flag now, so they implemented it. Um, yeah, it's it's going to roll out pretty fast. I think people will be excited about it and we'll start using it soon. And if V8 is pushing it out, then the other browser vendors are going to feel a bit of pressure to catch up and join the bandwagon, I think. Of course. (laughs) And with that, we've come to the end of our first segment. Amjad, I'm about to throw some quickfire questions your way. Let's do this. All right. What is the best advice about programming you've ever received? The best advice about programming, uh, I mean, I think that... Cliche, the MVP cliche. I think it's the best. Your cliches are cliches sometimes because they're true. So it's, it's the best advice is always, uh, always take the MVP pass at, at the uh, the problem and then maybe expand it later. And just getting users onto your products quickly. Yep. Which personal habit do you attribute to writing better code? Um, I think writing better prose and you know writing essays and. All that stuff, I think, really helps a lot with with the way I structure my code. So writing literature? Yes. Can you go a bit deeper into that? Yeah, uh, I just didn't want to expand too much because uh, because of the rapid-fire aspect of the segment. But um, <laughs> No, go for it. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I, I think the way we, we write our code... Um, is so, so there are multiple ways to think about it. One way to think about it is I'm writing code for the machine to execute, right? So I don't have to write anything that is that has a coherent story behind it. Um, it's just you know things that work, um, and you know there's some value to that. We talked about MVP, but at some point you also want to make sure that uh, people read that code, and uh, and people could be you in the future. It doesn't have to be other people. So eventually, uh, so the code, I think, um, I don't know which famous computer scientist uh, once said, but one of them said, um, uh, code is for people to read only, incident- only incidentally for machine to, machines to execute. So, so that's a big aspect of it. So for you to write code in a way that reads well for humans, I think you need to be able to write literal, literature well, because that's how we think that's how we communicate and that's how people you know learn to read so when i'm uh, writing code i try to have it you know 
seem like a story. You know, you, when you write an essay, you, you know, you have an introduction to the problem, and then you have you know the kind of the um, the you know you struggle with the with the different aspects of a problem towards the middle, and then you you propose some solution, and then you have some conclusion, right? So having that standard arc of a story inside inside your your code, I think is it's a very good way for you to understand it and for other people to, un- to understand it as well. And no one wants to revisit a terrible story ever again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Amjad, if you could recommend one book on programming, what would it be and why? Um, I think one that had the biggest imp- impact on me is the, uh, the Pragmatic Programmer. Um, and the reason is because it has a lot of um, kind of uh, philosophical approach to teaching you how to write better code and how to collaborate with your uh, with your team, and so it, on, on, it gives you these this philosophical underpinning. Although it's it's called the pragmatic programmer, but also a lot of it is pragmatic, um, and, uh, and and so it has a lot of like. Uh, advice that you could like literally read and then go apply the next day, but it has larger advice that you would um, that would would stay with you. For example, they they talk about the boiling frog problem, right? The the thing is like if you put a frog um, in a in a pot and start boiling it, the frog will just stay there and die from the heat eventually, but it would not feel the heat as it as it um, as it uh, as it increase in the pot. Um, but if you put it in a, in a hot, uh, pot, it will jump out immediately because, you know, it's too hot. So the idea is that we as programmers, uh, kind of, uh, as we're building large systems, we are the frog in the boiling pot. We yeah. are, you know, that the temperature continues to increase, meaning the, the, the entropy of the code and the, the, uh, the bad quality of the code continues to increase, but we are in the weeds so much. And we have so much knowledge cramped in our heads that it's um, that we uh, that we don't we don't really notice. And sometimes you know you hire someone new, and it's like, oh, what is this crap? You know, it's like they 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 give you this fresh eye over like you know what's what's happening in your code. So that's that's one. Uh, the other one that I'd like to mention really quickly is um, uh, the mythical man month. Uh, and uh, although now, like most of the code is date, uh, most of the book is dated, right? It's, it's, it was written in the seventies, it was, or eighties, and it was about someone's experience uh, writing this large OS in the sixties. So, uh, but there are some few essays in that book that are just um, timeless. So one of them is "No Silver Bullet," and the idea is that it seems like there's no way that we can make programming 10x better we it it is it seems like you know since we started programming since maybe the first 10x better jump was when grace hopper introduced the compiler and we had higher level languages right but uh since then we really didn't have a 10x jump in and the 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 day-to-day programming uh, maybe you can say open source might have been a 10x jump it could be but that's not like in the core of you know how you write code day to day, and actually in the book um, says that code reuse 
is is probably the, the the place where we can have the most impact in terms of programmer productivity. And uh, th- so that message is is just amazing. And the other thing that the book goes through is like talks about how you can structure your team in different ways. So, it, for example, it talks about the surgical team where you have uh, a lead who's actually writing a lot of the meat of the code, but then you have all, everyone else who's helping them by writing library libraries for them, by writing tests for them, by etc. So, um, I think these two books are just the uh, uh, the, the books that had the most impacts on me in, in programming. So who in the front-end world is doing work that really inspires you? Um, there are a few. Uh, so uh, mostly the, the people that I, that I think about is, are the people that are building the, the libraries and the frameworks and the compilers and the tools. So Sebastian McKenzie, um, he is the uh, he's the creator of Babel and the creator of Bjorn. Um, uh, I was I had the privilege of recruiting him to Facebook uh, when I was um, leading the JavaScript infrastructure team and worked with him uh, uh, quite a bit before before I left. Um, and I think just someone that young. Um, being able to continue to innovate within just a span of a few years, changing the JavaScript industry, right? I mean, Babel and Yarn literally changed how most people are are using JavaScript. So, uh, and he continues to do things. Like, I would not be surprised if tomorrow or next year or whatever, we're going to have another groundbreaking thing from, from him. So uh, that guy continues to inspire me. Um, and there are some people that kind of under the radar. So my friend uh, Felix, who works at Facebook as well, he builds these really interesting tools that uh, that a lot of people use, but they don't know that he built them because he's not very, you know, he's not very outspoken. He doesn't speak at conferences. He's not active on Twitter, but he built this thing um, called uh, AST Explorer. Uh, so that allows you to like, um, you know, paste a code and look at the AST of that code. You can also write Babel transforms. You can write code mods. And speaking of code mods, he also built the co- code modding library. Um, it's it's the it's the main one. I forgot what it was called, but uh, it's the one that everyone uses now. Um, and uh, yeah, I think his work goes a little bit underappreciated, but I think he's also having a lot of impact. And the, he has a lot of interesting things in the works as well that, that I'm excited to see. And there's a lot of exciting stuff coming out from the, some of the guys that you know personally. Now, Amjad, imagine you wake up and you have no recollection of ever having written code. With your knowledge of tools, books, and courses available today, how would you go about learning to program from scratch? Um, I probably... Um, let's see. Well, depending, there are two paths. Uh, there's, there's a path of learning online and there's the path of, of finding a school. Um, mm. From from personal experience, um, so I, I learned on my own at home, uh, but it doesn't seem like this is the best way most people learn. It seems like the best way most people learn is with other people. So I'd find a local code school. That's the first thing that I would do. And they're popping up uh, all over the place. Some of them are nonprofits. So you, you can you can get in somewhat cheaply. Um, some of them are boot camps that actually promise you to give you a job 
So that's that's an interesting one. So I'd probably maybe do one of those. Um, if I don't have the means to, if I am in the remote area, in a remote area where we don't have boot camps, uh, I'll, the way I'd go about it is um, I'd probably first do Codecademy just to like, you know, dip dip my foot in the water. Um, and then, and then I, uh, I probably pick up a book. So pick up one of the books that allows you, that has a lot of exercise in it. Exercises are, are great. So the book that I, I, I don't know. So that, that part, I don't know exactly what to say because I'm not very in tune with like beginner books. But there are a lot of really interesting JavaScript uh, books out there. So there's the um, Eloquent JavaScript. Yes, Eloquent JavaScript is really good because it also have a, has a lot of exercises. So I uh, get that and go to an online um, REPL, like for example, REPLit, <laughs> and um, and just open the book uh, on your side <laughs> um, and start reading the book. And then once you see an exercise, just immediately jump and start doing the exercise. Just keep going back and forth, and I think you'll be able to learn all the basics really, really fast. Now, I think where, where the problem lies, and I think where we haven't done very well in the kind of the web development community, is that getting into frameworks is so hard. I think React is one of the hardest things to get into. I create React app is awesome. I mean, it, it brings the barrier to entry a little bit down. I think Ember CLI. It does a great job at like guiding people through, um, through uh, onboarding them on, on the ecosystem. But I think still like the web development frameworks are a little bit too complex. So, and, and you know the reality is, you you probably can't get a job or can't be respected in in the community if you don't know one of the frameworks. If you say I'm a, I'm just like a native uh, or like a vanilla JavaScript developer, like everyone will scoff at you. So, uh, so th there's a bit of a problem there, but, uh, but I think, you know, I think you'll be able to get into one of these frameworks. Yeah. And I think it's a bit unfortunate that it's those basics and fundamentals that we often take for granted. And that's, what's going to allow us to pick up these new and fancy libraries all the time. Yep. Now Amjad, let's wrap up with your top tip on how to work smart and the best way to connect with you. Um, how to work smart. I think blocking out hours of the day, like not just like 30 minutes and like going in to check Twitter, then just blocking hours and getting into flow. I think that's, that's the best, uh, uh, thing that I found for myself is actually the thing that creates the most happiness, uh, in people's lives. I mean, there's, there's a lot of research about how getting into flow is the number, is, might be the number one uh, predictor of how happy people and how satisfied people are with their work. So, um, so get an editor that you can that you can do most things in. So, if you have Sublime and you have to keep switching screens, uh, like between Sublime and 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 you know the terminal, then you'll get out of flow. You need to like optimize for flow. So, Emacs or opening a terminal with Tmux and Vim and everything in single screen. I think that is really conducive for, or maybe Adam has a lot of extensions, but maybe that's really conducive for, um, for you know, uh, getting into flow. So that's that's the number one thing. And the best way to connect with you? Uh, best way to connect with me. Um, 
Uh, I recently tried to like keep away from the Twitters, uh, especially <laughs> with the you know current political climate. Um, <laughs> it's just yeah, too too much too much stuff going on that uh, that kind of like not only not only distracts me but puts me in a bad mood. So uh, so I would say usually I'd say Twitter, but not as much these days. Um, I'll, I'll check it, you know once every couple of weeks even and, and sometimes um not with tweeting that much. But I'll probably go back to it at some point. Um so I'm Twitter, Amosod, Amosod on GitHub. Uh but you know, uh, email me. I'm uh also happy to always um respond to people and, and chat. So it's uh Amjad at at Raplet. To everyone out there, you've been hanging with Amjad Massad and Larry Buerta. Head over to fixate.it where you'll find links and timestamps for everything we've been chatting about today. And of course, head over to Replit, spin up a REPL of your choice and get prototyping. Amjad, thank you for sharing your journey with Fixate on Code. Keep pushing the limits and keep pushing great code. <laughs>